So, welcome to this wonderful Lord's Day, and uh, there should be handouts that Elder Lewis handed out. If we anybody needs more, there's some over here. Um, let's go ahead and start out with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day, and we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at your word, uh, to look at the, the larger catechism and, and how it reflects your glory, reflects your honor. And we pray that uh, as we study and go through this, that, that we recognize and um, can see clearly your glory as it's shown through uh, the text of your scripture. Lord, we pray for Pastor as he uh, prepares uh, to give your sermon, your word today in, uh, in the sermon this morning and this evening. And we pray that you would uh, work on the hearts of everybody uh, at this church, that we would be prepared for your word and... Uh, and what you are building in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So today we're going to be going over a larger catechism question 45. It is the top thing on your handout. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, say the question and answer together. So how doth Christ execute the office of king? Christ executed the office of a king in calling out the world, a people to himself, and giving them officers, laws, and censures, by which he visibly hindered him, and bestowed saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, Restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordaining all things for his own glory and their good. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Okay, so for the last two weeks we have been going over how Christ executes the office of prophet and how he executes the office of priest. And today we're going to be going over how he executes the office of king. Mainly, um, mainly we're going to be going through Christ's execution of the office of king in the mediatorial sense. This also merges into a couple spheres, and we're going to be able to dive into some of this... Um, there are some who would call themselves Christians who do not believe in this question and answer, who would not let their children say this question and answer, and we'll go into that as well. So, uh, in this question and answer, we use the word king. In today's day and time, king is not a word normally used uh, Obviously, and so uh, there would be some who would say that the divines used the word king here because of the time frame that they wrote this. And so the answer to that is no. In Scripture, Scripture refers to Christ as king. All throughout Scripture, it foretells Christ coming as king. And so today you're going to get to practice your sword drill as we go through and we uh, look up Scripture and show where... Uh, Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament are referring to Christ as king and his kingdom. 
So what is a king? A king in the human sense is a person advanced to the highest dignity. It denotes someone who has dominion over subjects. And exercises dominion is relative and limited. But when we talk as Christ as king, it's important to understand it's a universal dominion. That Christ has no boundaries in his, uh, in his dominion. And he has subjects that uh, love him, that honor him. And the psalmist says, uh, God is the king of all the earth. In this respect, it denotes a divine perfection. So Ecclesiastes 8.4 says, Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So scripture itself talks about how king, kings have power. And in the question itself, it specifically talks about how he's powerfully ordering all things to his own glory. A um, couple things in the answer that we've gone through, it, it's got a lot of absolutes in it, which are normally things that you leave out of question answer. But here it talks about Christ having power and about how uh, he has all in multiple different aspects is speaking about Christ and his realm of authority and just having all of the power, all of the jurisdiction. And so I hope to go through each of those today with you. So um, we said earlier, uh, Christ was prophesied to be king early on in Scripture. If we go to uh, Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is referring to Christ. This is referring to... Um, to the ultimate fruition of Christ as king. And it's coming from the line of David. Uh, we also see similar talk in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, and in uh, uh, Micah 5, 2. Let me go to that one real quick. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. So all of this is pointing to Christ as a king. So even in the New Testament, Luke comes in and says, uh, Luke one thirty-two, he will be great. And will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So the bounds of his kingdom are sort of set right there. There are none. Okay, so um, in the question and answer today... Uh, the catechism divides it up in three main spheres. We've got the visible church, the invisible church, 
and the world. And we're going to go into each of those in great depth, but the question itself focuses mainly on the invisible church. And that makes sense because the invisible church or the church body of the elect is the most important for the benefit of the invisible church. Christ exercises his kingly office for that realm. And then we're going to be talking about the visible church and the world. And that's where uh, we have some who would separate from our understanding of Christ and his realm. So the very first part of the question, we're going to break it up and uh, go through the proof texts that are associated with this. says, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. Um, if someone will look up Acts 15, 14 through 16. Got it. Go ahead. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. So James is speaking here, right? And... He's actually talking about the Gentiles and, and about the realm of Christ's kingdom, who before now people thought was a small sect, and it's grown much more. Uh, the next passage we're going to do is Isaiah 55, 4 through 5. Who's got that one? I got it. Go ahead. So here again, we're, we're seeing a nation that's been chosen of God. Uh, Genesis 49.10. The obedience of the people. So he's chosen his people. And then Psalm 110, 3. Got it. Your people will offer themselves freely on the, on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Again, your people. He has chosen a people. For himself, um, this is not a new um, way of talking about things. We've always talked about God's elect and about how uh, a certain number have been chosen. So He is pulling out a certain number um, of people to Himself, and uh, Scripture clearly brings that out. But of those number, like those elect. Those are what we call the invisible church. So this is in relation to those. And for of those elect, he's giving them officers. And so that's the next part of the question and answer. Uh, he gave them officers, laws, and censures. 
And so um, I will jump in and Ephesians 4.11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So here we're coming out and saying that there are officers that God has put in place for the visible church that are reigning and they are uh, over the visible church and invisible church. Next one's going to be uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, if someone has that one. I got it. Go ahead. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, the gifts of healing, helps, administrations, verities of the tongue. So who has authority to make these positions of power? Well, it's Christ. He does because he's king. And so he's made these positions, these officers in the church uh, that this question clearly brings out uh, that have authority that Christ has given them. So he also gives laws to his people. That rubs people the wrong way a lot of times. Um, giving laws to his people, Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two says, "For the Lord is our judge; the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king, and He will save us." So, uh, you know, Pastor talked about in last week's sermon about how Christ came fulfill the law. It didn't do away with the law, right? The law is there. And we regularly, regularly recite the law uh, that has been given for us in our worship service. These laws hold firm and fast. And who has the authority to give those laws? Well, it's Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our King. And so we take those laws, and those laws mean something to us. Uh, during the latter part of the question answer, we're going to see what happens when you disregard his law. It's not good. So uh, the next part of the question brings out censures of the church, or censures of church discipline is what I put on the sheet. And I want to talk a little bit about the word censures uh, because it's not a word commonly used. Um, anybody take a gander at what censures means? Okay. The definition of censures, it's a judgment involving condemnation. Uh, the act of blaming or condemning sternly or an official reprimand. I mean, just in its definition, it's a kingly reprimand. So he is giving censures to his church, reprimand, official reprimands. And who has the authority to do that? Well, he who is over the church, Christ. So let's jump in. If someone will read uh, Matthew 18, 17 through 18. Go ahead.
This is stunning. And this has such authority. This is a process flow that Christ has put in place for his church. And it's not just a process flow. There are teeth to this as well. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Who has authority to do that? Well, Christ. His kingdom has no end. But the idea here specifically is we have structure in the church, and Christ has brought down and said that if you are refusing to hear the church, you are to be like a heathen and a tax collector. We are to treat them as that. And so we have clear instruction here um, in, in how he would like the church to define and work, uh, work through those things. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5. Go ahead, Duncan. as well. All right, so this has clear command, right? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are to gather together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this is power. This is direction. You don't get this from somebody who doesn't have the authority to give that power and direction. So um, obviously these are uh, guidelines. These are directions to the church that, um, that is Christ's church. All right. Um, so let's talk about saving grace for the elect because the question itself, after discussing... Um, 
calling the people to himself and giving officers laws and censures by which he visibly governs them. The visibly, that's part of visibly governing the church. He is bestowing saving grace upon his elect. That's specifically referring to the invisible church, right? Because we're all subjects of Christ. There are enemies as well. And at one point in time, all of our hearts were uh, not awakened. We were not, uh, we did not have the saving spirit in us. And at a point in time, he, Christ, um, bestowing the saving grace upon us so that we were awakened and where we can love and serve him. So uh, let's walk through a couple scriptures for that one. Uh, Acts 5.31. I'll go ahead and read this one. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Christ in his realm has um, given saving grace, given the Holy Spirit to us so that we may serve and rule him. He has pulled out of his great uh, vast kingdom those specific that he wants to save. So he is a mediator for us to the Father. All right, so um, Revelations 2. Let's go through that one. Um, Revelations 2.10 says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So in this case, this is a particular scripture that's pointing out the reward that Christ has for his elect, which he has the authority to give. Um, Christ has the authority to save those whom he will save and re reward those who are obedient to him. So Revelations 22.12 also says, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So again, who has the authority to do this? This is Christ, as, as spoken about in Scripture. So um, Christ also has the realm of correcting the elect for their sins. So uh, staying in the same book, Revelations 3.19. Revelations 3.19 says, And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. For as many as I love. 
So if you're rebuked and chastened, Christ loves you. So here, he not only has the authority, but then he bestows it upon those whom he loves. All right, but Christ also supports his elect in their temptations and their sufferings. The way the question puts it, uh, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings. There's a lot to be said uh, for that. And uh, we as humans sometimes get really selfish when we talk about our, our temptations and woe is me. Uh, but Christ never overdoes it for us. It's always with uh, not more temptations, not more sufferings than we can deal with. If someone can read Isaiah 63.9, please. Go ahead, Will. Christ cares for his people. Christ cares for his subjects. The temptations and sufferings that, that we are given are for his glory. And he helps us through. Um, so, moving into his enemies... Uh, every kingdom does have enemies, and Christ does have enemies. Although our understanding of a kingdom seems very limited in the power that Christ has. So he has power outside of the visible church as well. So he is powerful enough to restrain and overcome the enemies of his people. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.25. Let's go ahead and throw some context into that. And if someone will read uh, 25 through 28 on that one. I got it. Go ahead. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son of himself, I'm sorry, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. God is all powerful. So the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So who has authority to say this but the kingdom, uh, but Christ the king? Uh, because it talks specifically about the kingdom of God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So uh, the next, next uh, passage we're going to look up for this one is going to be uh, Psalms 110, 1 through 2. Anybody want that one? Abby?
The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. So uh, the Lord has the power here, has the power to restrain his enemies. Um, when I think about this one, um, I, I think about Exodus 34. Um, believe that one is it. Let me double check. Thirty-four, twenty-four. Yeah, so um, thirty-four Exodus thirty-four twenty-four um, is is talking about um, God's people, and it says uh, I'm going to start with uh, verse twenty-three. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord the Lord God of Israel, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. This specifically says that people won't even covet the land. Christ has all power it didn't say that they wouldn't be able to plunder the land. It didn't say that they wouldn't be able to invade the land. They aren't even going to covet it. So uh, Christ and his ability to restrain his enemies is overwhelming. Uh, Psalm 2, 1 through 4 says, get there real quick. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He who is heaven shall laugh. I mean, it's, it's almost like the, you know, they're trying their, their mightiest to go against Christ. And he will laugh at them. He is all powerful. Okay. So uh, chugging through the answer, we're going to go in a little bit more depth on some of these uh, later on, but I'm going to try to hit these proof texts and go through them first. Ordering all this for his own glory. Uh, it's not a foreign concept to us, but let's go ahead and if someone will read Romans 14, 10 through 11. All right, let's go with one of the Tejadas. Let's start over here. For as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, 
and every tongue shall confess God. Okay, so we are talking here specifically about, um, well, if my notes would be in the right order, we would be really good. Okay, so, uh, ordering everything for his own glory, knees bowing at him. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Everything that is going on, even if we believe that it to be a horrible wreck, God orders for his own glory. I want to go into more depth on that here soon because it has a lot to do with how we believe the world is structured and is moving. It has a lot to, to do with how we believe in end times. Is God in control? Is Christ really in control? Yes, yes he is. So we're going to order all these things for his good. Uh, and the good of his elect, Romans eight twenty eight. If someone wants that one, we'll go next down the road, Charlie. So this is one of those things. I mean, y'all all know that one by heart, right? You know that all things work together. So Christ is taking care of his, uh, his elect, ordering all things for the good of his elect. We are so blessed that, that Christ makes it so that we are being blessed as we are blessing him. And he does that in all things, even, ever, even when we think that we are um, struggling uh, it is for his glory that we struggle and that he will not ever give us more than we can handle. All right. All right. So uh, the next verse that we're going to do Okay, so um, we're going to move into the taking vengeance on his enemies side. Uh, and Second Thessalonians, um, I'm putting 8 through 9. Let's start that one at verse 6 to grab some context there. Who would like that one? It's a little bit of a longer one. Go ahead. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So our king has the authority to punish. And who does he punish? Well, he punishes his enemies. We have another uh, scripture supporting us here. Let's go with uh, Psalm 2, 8 through 9. Who would like that one? Next, over here. Ask God 
What an imagery there. Talking about a nation being dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, being broken with a rod of iron. Enemies of our king will be punished. Christ's kingdom will reign. So we've gone through each individual uh, portion of the question answer. Let's dig into some of the implications there. So uh, what elements would you say are included in Christ's kingly rule in the invisible church? Um, We're going to say specifically here that the saving grace on the elect by the Holy Spirit um, results, results in the formation of his kingdom, of his, of his elect of his kingdom. And then he's going to reward the obedience of his people. And then he will preserve and support his elect under all their temptations and sufferings. So uh, the elements that we would say are included in Christ's kingly rule in the world or universe, right? Now we're getting on beyond the visible church and the invisible church, um, are the last part of the question where we're talking about restraining and overcoming all the enemies of his elect. Who has authority to do that but Christ our King And then he's powerfully ordering all things to his own glory and for his people's good. And even even the evil deeds of the wicked men are made to work out for the true benefit of the elect. The story that comes to mind for me is going to be from 1 Kings 22. Um, I'm probably going to do a, a very rough version of this one. Everybody remembers this one as Ahab. Ahaz. Uh, King Ahab, King Ahab, who uh, who was wicked, uh, who was uh, evil, and was going to uh, fool God, right? And even in his um, even in his most witty way of doing it, God still takes vengeance. King Ahab, who dressed up as uh, not a king, uh, is still the one who dies by an arrow that was pulled at random by the opposing army. As much as he tried to get around what he was told, he was not able to. So uh, Christ taking vengeance on the wicked uh, who know not God nor obey his gospel. This vengeance is partly during the present life of Christ and uh, partly and actually mostly going to be during the judgment day at the end of the age. That comes down to realm of authority, which Christ has, right? We aren't just saying that Christ is the king of the church alone. His authority expands much beyond that. And so whenever it talks with authority that those... uh, Those who go against him will be punished. Uh, This is the moment in time that he would then come and bring in the punishment uh, for Judgment Day and then uh, as well some during this world. So in which spheres 
is Christ's kingly reign over our nation included? And we would say Christ's kingly reign over the nation is included in the third sphere, the one for the world. So um, the Bible teaches that Christ is currently a king, was a king, uh, and then will be a king. So we see that Christ is king today. And so if, if people are asking the question, uh, is Christ still king? There's all this wicked and bad stuff happening in the world. The answer is yes. So the question is, how do you rectify that Christ is king and that all of these bad things are happening in the world? So Christ is king, and his authority is so great that even the evil and the wicked will ultimately be for his good. It will ultimately uh, perform his good. And we do believe that his good will reign. And so the church will rise up, and uh, at the end of time, he will reign, and over his uh, evil enemies, he will take dominion. Okay, so um, while I'm there, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 25.2, uh, talks a little bit about the visible church, um, and just wanted to talk here about Christ's kingdom in the visible church. It says, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility uh, of salvation. And so while we're, while we're talking about that and Christ's kingdom over his church, I'm going to jump down to uh, point six in that same chapter of the Westminster Confession. It says, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof. And so when we are talking about the church, we have but one, Christ, who is king of, uh, who is king of this realm, king of the church and of the universe. So we've gone over today how Christ is king. It's not a foreign concept. We sing about it in our psalm. In fact, today, during the service, when we sing our psalm of the month, take a look. It's mentioned multiple times in there. It's mentioned all throughout the psalms how Christ is king and should be king in every aspect of our life. And for us to see it in any other way would be reducing our, what our uh, view of our king should be. So I'm going to open it up for questions. Hearing no questions, I'll go ahead and close us with prayer. Lord, we thank you, and we worship you, and we pray that we would um, 
glorifying you in all that we say and we do. Lord, you are king. And we pray that we would acknowledge that. That when we look out across the world and we get disheartened, Lord, we pray for that spirit um, to revive us, to see how you are kingly over all. Lord, we pray that we would uh, be a part of your will in, in how we act and how we respond. And Lord, that we, that we work uh, without end on, enhance, on uh, spreading your word across the nations. Lord, be with Pastor today as he brings your word and the sermon. Uh, we pray that you would uh, bless our interactions with each other. And we pray that, that we would glorify you, Lord, in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.